You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2008. Today's episode is titled, Spiritual Reality Drives the Economy. What is the root of physical reality? If you are biblically minded, you would probably acknowledge that God is the source of physical reality. And since God is a spirit being, the root of physical reality is spiritual reality. This means that every economic problem is rooted in some spiritual reality. So if we want to prosper in God's creation, we need to learn His rules. Hence, just like Elisha's servant, we need to learn to see the spiritual reality that is at work behind every physical manifestation that we see. As I've been praying about this session, I had a lot of thoughts about you know which way to go. And... and um, the one thing that I, I, I want to do is be relevant. Uh, as I travel around and I meet people, and particularly I'm in church environments, what, I, what I'm impressed with is um, how most business people go to church, and when they go to church, it's kind of like a different world. And then when they walk out of the door of the church, you know, they walk into what they consider to be reality. So it's like church is not reality. You know, church is some unreal place that we go to on Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever to kind of escape the difficulties and challenges of reality. And what I'm trying to say is, you know, there really should be no difference. You know, we should be living out our worldview uh, every day in every venue, no matter what it is, even in church. Um, I think it's fun sometimes to talk to pastors about a biblical worldview of church. You know? Just a little story, you know, I just... Uh, Anecdotally, I was invited to speak to a group of pastors several years ago, and the topic I was given was um, how, do, how does a businessman relate to the pastor, or how does the pastor relate to the businessman? Really, was the topic. So I walked in, and uh, it was about 60 pastors, most of whom are senior pastors, most of whom have been pastors for 20 and 30 years, and a lot of them have been in the same church for that length of time. So uh, th- there's a side of me that's. Um, can't resist the opportunity to ask probing questions. And so I said to them, I said, what is it all you guys want? And they all start looking at each other. What's he talking about here? I said, well, let me help you out. I know what you guys want is you want a church that makes a difference. You want a church that people will look at and say, wow, we are so blessed to have that church in this community. You want a church where people's lives are being changed and transformed, where Jesus Christ is being exalted and worshiped. You know, you want a church that, you know, is so powerful and dynamic that it's just drawing people to Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I said, well, who's got one? Of course, now, now I'm not sure whether they're getting ready to throw fruit at me, you know, or trying to crawl under the chair, and, you know, because they've been convicted. And that was a difficult moment for them. You could tell. And I said, look, I, I, uh, I'm not trying to offend you in any way. And I really don't want to let you off the hook. I want you to feel the pain that you're feeling right now. Because there's something very dysfunctional about Christianity in this country. And we've got to sit down and wrestle with that and figure out what it is. And Christianity has largely been compartmentalized to the local church and maybe your personal life, maybe your family life. But outside of that, it's not relevant. It's not relevant to business. It's not relevant to our public policy. It's not relevant to our education. And you see that. We've got this doctrine of separation of church and state going on in our country today. We have the politicians, they're, uh, they're running around uh, speaking in churches. Have you noticed that? They're going into churches and speaking. And th- they're really you know, playing it up that you know, they've been to Sunday school, they attend church, you know, they're part of the church, da-da-da-da-da. And then you get them away from that environment and they're talking to the media. What they tell the media is, we're not going to let the church influence our decisions at all. Now, what are they saying here? You know, what they're saying is we don't, well, the church is irrelevant. The Bible is irrelevant. It's not, it's not significant to help us govern ourselves as a people. Now, you all are looking at me and you all are not reacting. You know, the reason you're not reacting is because you've been indoctrinated with this. I mean, this ought to get a rile out of you. If you are, are committed to the Word of God being the foundation of your life, you ought to be up in arms saying, hey, I don't agree. Where is it you tell me that you're going to go govern this country and you're not going to look at the Word of God and you're not going to listen to church leaders 
How in the world are you going to govern this country? What is the worldview that you're going to use? Where are the principles that you're going to use? Where are the value system that you're going to use? Where does that come from? See, there's never that discussion because we are so indoctrinated in thinking non-biblically in this country. The separation of church and state is a wrong doctrine. When it was, when it was put forth back uh, about 200 years ago, the whole issue was a group of a Baptist in Connecticut were concerned that the federal government might get involved with the church affairs of church. They had come from England. You remember what, what happened in England with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and all that? Henry VIII wants to divorce his wife. The Catholic Church says, you can't divorce your wife. He said, fine, I'll divorce you. I'll take over the church. So he takes over the church so he can legitimize what he wants to do. And now we have a state running a church. Mm -hmm. And that led to tyranny in England. And so our ancestors, our forefathers, left that. They came here to get away from that. So they do not want the government running the church. That was their concern. We need to be sure the government does not interfere with our church. Now, it was intended to be a one-way deal because our government leaders were all Christians and they were looking to the pastors and the Word of God to tell them how to govern, to give them the principles and the values that they needed to make the laws for this land. We have flipped it. We have let the atheist agenda win. And they flipped it around, and now it's we have to protect the state from the church. So we eliminate anything that looks like the Bible or Christianity or church from government and, and anything that government can control. And so that's the lie that we're living in, the delusion. That's why we can sit here and we can listen to these kinds of these politicians say the kinds of things they do, and we don't, we don't, we don't react to it. Because we're semi swimming in a sea of separation of church and state, which is a wrong doctrine. Now, let me just illustrate this further. Uh, how many of you are aware of what's going on in Fiji? What happened in Fiji, um, in, in May of 2000, there was a political coup. And the reason there was a political coup was that for the first time in the history of Fiji, a minority prime minister was elected. Fiji largely has two ethnic groups. There are... Uh, there are indigenous Fijians who were converted to Christianity about 150 to 200 years ago. And then there's Hindus, okay, Indians who are largely Hindu in their profession of faith. And so you've got these two groups. Now, the, the, the Hindus, the Indians, are largely the workers. Okay? And the ethnic Fijians are kind of the, the nobility of that society. For all these years, there has been increasing tension between these two groups of people. And never had the Hindus had any kind of political clout until the middle 90s, and they finally won public office. They won the highest office. They won the office of prime minister. Well, the ethnic Fijians didn't like it. And so the, the rumbling started, and finally in May in 2000, there was a coup. And what the coup did is they came in and they took over the government. They basically just shut the government down. They, they, they actually held them hostage. Now, the police and the army could have taken care of this. But they were divided. You know, they didn't know which, which, some of them wanted to support the coup, some of them didn't. So they had all this internal bickering between the army and the police, and that had to get sorted out before the, the coup was finally repressed 56 days later. So what came out of that was then an interim government. Well, this interim government was largely Christian, but they were there just for an interim period of time. Now, what happened, when the coup happened, the economy went in the ditch. Tourism stopped. The Central Business District got burned out. Most of those were Indian shopkeepers. Their shops were torched. Their, their merchandise was stolen. Some of them were killed. There were farms that were ravaged. They, they went out there and just absolutely, they would destroy crops. Basically, the economy stopped. There was no food production. There was no manufacturing. There was no distribution. There was no import, no export, no tourism, nothing. Even the fish disappeared. Fiji is known for a number of unique fish. They disappeared. And the streams that were feeding uh, the, the, many of the fields, many of those became polluted. Now, some of that was happening before, but what happened in 2000 was whatever was happening, those forces in play got worse. And so here you have an absolute devastated economy. There are no jobs. There's no food. There's nothing. There's no money, nothing. And so here are these, these political leaders, they've just 
taken over after the coup, and now they've got this economy in the ditch. Okay? Now, suppose you're in their shoes. What are you going to do? You've got to fix this economy, so what are you going to do? Let me suggest this. What's, what's in us, in this country, the separation of church and state is so in us that we don't really see the root issue. Okay? Now, in Fiji, they don't have that doctrine. They don't have the doctrine of separation of church and state. So they don't think the way we think. What they, the government leaders came together, and they're, they're largely Christians, and they began to pray and ask the Lord, what's going on here? And God began to show them that my church is fragmented. My church is, uh, is, back, is doing backbiting, there's jealousy, there's bickering, there's, there's one-upmanship, there's all this stuff going on in my church. Okay? And they realized that the key to that society was, was a healthy spiritual climate. Now, you've got to let that sink in because this is so foreign to us. We do not think this way at all. Okay? And there, we could go through a lot of examples of that. But let me just dwell on this and think about what they were doing here. What they were realizing was a fundamental truth that what drives physical reality is spiritual reality. Whatever results you get in the tangible world are ultimately rooted in some spiritual reality, whether it's good or bad. For example, um, any of you all had a money problem? Okay, we've all probably had money challenges. Okay, do you know that God owns everything? Do you know that God has no problem with money? He needs money, make money. He needs gold, he can make gold, whatever. And is God your father? Okay, is he a good God? Then why do you have money problems? I actually had a, one of my clients' uh, wife came in to see me here recently. And uh, this is a longtime client of mine in... Um, so I know them well, and she, uh, she throws down a piece of paper on the table and say, look at this, and it's a financial statement. And what it's showing them is a lot of debt. And they have some retirement funds, and she's saying, okay, I'm thinking about liquidating these retirement funds, pay the penalty and the taxes, and clean out this debt. I said, well, you could do that, but in about two years, we're going to be right back here having the same conversation. And she says, why? I said, because money is not a root issue. The tangible world is never a root issue. The tangible world is a manifestation of the underlying spiritual reality that's going on in an organization or in you personally or in your family or in your church or in your, or in your society. And see, the Fijians understood that. We don't get that. That's why we, don't, we would not think the way they thought. They realized we will never have a healthy economy unless we get the church unified and truly worshiping God. So they call a meeting with the pastors, the church leaders. And there's basically, the Methodist church is the largest denomination. Um, there's a lot of independent churches. There's some assembly of gods and a sprinkling of other denominations. They got them all together in a room. And here's the political leaders saying, you know, we love you guys. And you all are very important. But you're messing us up. Because you guys are fragmented and not unified. You guys are not seeking God. You're seeking your own agendas. And that's killing this country. Now, if you did that with pastors over here, that's, what would they say? Well, we don't have anything to do with the economy. That's probably what you'd hear. The economy's not our purview. But over there, those pastors understood the reality that physical manifestations, money, economics, business, tourism, all that stuff, even the fish in the lagoon, are reflection of the underlying spiritual realities at work in this country. So those pastors repented. They repented. They got on, dropped on their knees and said, Lord, forgive us for our bickering, our backbiting, our sin, our jealousy, our greed, you know, our building our own empires, all the junk that's going on. Forgive us. They started repenting. They started weeping. They started coming together in prayer. So as these church leaders began to come together in prayer, guess what? Well, here come the business leaders. They start joining them in prayer. And then the political leaders join them in prayer. And the next thing you know, what happens? Transformation in the economy begins to happen. People that had, had, had their businesses burned out by Christians, the Christians go back and repent. and say, would you forgive us for destroying your business? And we would like to help you rebuild it. 
and we'll pay for it. Would you forgive us for helping us, helping, for destroying your field? We want to rebuild it for you. Will you forgive us for stealing this stuff? We want to give it back to you and we want to pay you extra. And they started repenting and going back and restoring what had been destroyed. Well, then some, something marvelous happened. The tourists started coming back. And then, and they didn't do a marketing campaign either, okay? <laughs> the tourists started coming back. The fish started coming back. Crabs showed up in the lagoon bigger than they had ever seen. Polluted streams all of a sudden overnight were clean. And they said, how did this happen? Miracles began to happen. There was a, a one man that uh, had a marijuana farm. And that's what he grew. And every year, you know, here come the ships from Asia and the U.S. And he'd load them up with marijuana. And he, he went to one of the revivals. See, what happened is this began to spread. It was a spiritual revival in the country. They began to have meetings. They had a three-week meeting in July of 2001, prayer and Bible study for three weeks. Would we do that? Would we do something like that? I mean, that three weeks, I mean, we can't hardly go three hours. I mean, we, you mean, 45 minutes is it, and I'm out of here. You know, that's the way we think. They went together, and I, I saw a video of this thing. It's just impressive to see the hungry, hunger of the people, the worship of God, the study of the Word of God, how it's transforming them. They were not focused on the economy. You know, I, I learned this lesson, I guess, kind of dramatically a couple of years ago. I began, a few years ago, I began to understand this truth that what drove the physical reality was the spiritual reality. And so I, I thought, well, I'm going to experiment with this a little bit. You know, sometimes my clients are my guinea pigs. So I've got this client who calls me. He says, uh, look, I've got, these, uh, I've got this hardware store that I run, and uh, we had five locations, and we were running, running great, and then all of a sudden Home Depot and Lowe's came in. And, man, all of a sudden I'm in tailspin because I can't compete with them. And so I shut down four locations. I consolidated into one. And in the process of doing all that, I spent all my money, and I exhausted my credit line. My bank has frozen my credit line, and now I can't buy inventory. I need you to recapitalize my business. Does that sound like a business problem? That's a business problem, isn't it? Okay. Now, at this point, I'm just beginning to get this truth, so I thought, I'm going to check this out. So uh, I said, uh, tell me about your marriage. He says, what? What's my marriage got to do with this? I said, well, I don't know, but I know this. Money's not a root issue. Money's a symptom. Okay? If I help you work on the symptom, then you'll probably be right back here in this boat in a year or two. But if I can help you find the root issue and fix that, then the problem goes away forever. Isn't that a nice way to go? Let's go to the root issue. So he listened to me a little while and said, oh, okay. And I said, and we have, what we have in this universe is we have a spirit being that we know to be God who created this physical universe, which means the physical came out of the spiritual. I mean, you could tell I me mean, the wheels are turning like, I've never heard this before. Well, it's right there in the Bible. I mean, look in Genesis 1, and we know John 4 says God is spirit. He's a spirit in Genesis 1 too. He created this thing. He put all the rules in place. He even created us and told us what he wanted us to do. By the way, why are we here? You know why we're here? We're here to rule. That's what we're to do. Okay. Now, how does the Great Commission fit into that? You ever thought about that? Why are you saved? It's a different question. Why are you here is one question. Why are you saved is another question. You ever thought about that? I mean, I grew up Baptist. I thought, you, you know, basically we're saved to populate heaven. That's what I thought. Did you all think that? I mean, that's kind of, I don't know that I ever heard anybody say that. It's just kind of what I discerned or picked up or assumed or whatever. So I just thought, you know, it's all about, you know, well, Monday night visitation. We've got to get them saved so we can populate heaven. You know, I never connected the Great Commission and, and the creation mandate of Genesis 1. I, I never couldn't figure out how, how would that work. You know, and we don't think about those things because, again, it gets back to how we, we've kind of compartmentalized our spiritual life. And we haven't realized that our spiritual life undergirds everything because God is the author of everything. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like this terminology we're using today. I want to integrate my faith in my work. Have you all used that terminology or heard that terminology? There's a lot of people using that terminology. We, I was introduced at, at, a, at a conference. Those guys, I know, I understand. Well, I, I, had, I didn't think a lot about it until a few years ago, and I was introduced at, uh, at a conference by a professor of business at, uh, at a Christian university, and he was saying, at this university, we want to integrate our faith with our business. 
And I thought, what in the world does that mean? Because to me, the foundation of my, of my life is this word. I'm not trying to integrate my business and my faith. I'm trying to build my business on my faith. You know, it's not kind of like they coexist. It's one is the foundation of the other. And so that's, that's the spiritual reality that's in me. Whatever it is, that's driving everything. Anyway, back to the story. So I start talking to this client about, you know, okay, let's talk about your marriage. And so we talk about the marriage a little while. And then we discover that he's not listening to his wife. And one of the things I've, I've learned about God is that um, it, however I relate to my wife is probably how I'm relating to God. So if I'm not listening to my wife, I'm probably not listening to God. And that doesn't play well in a lot of audiences. You get a lot of groans when you hear that. So anyway, we start talking, and, and that, that came out of it. So they repented, and they, they asked each other to forgive each other, and they began to really press in and work together. And then we uncovered a few other things in their relationship that were really not playing out well. The end result of it all is they spent about a half a day today, uh, together in the midst of his business crisis you know, working on their marriage. Okay? Now, I haven't touched the business problem. Next day, he goes back to work. I'm expecting a phone call, and now I get to put on my business consultant hat, you know, and solve this business problem. Well, I get the phone call, and it, and it goes like this. You're not going to believe what happened today. I said, what happened? He said, well, I came back to the office, and we, you know, my wife and I had a great time, really went to a new level of our relationship. I repented for the way I had treated her and I listened to her and I know that's the way I was treating God and we had a great time of prayer and, and she is interceding for me today and I've just, I came, I came to work full of faith and I had no idea what was going to happen but I knew it was going to be good because God is good. And he says, I walked in the door and the first thing that happens, one of my employees came up to me and he said, uh, hey boss, can I talk to you? He said, sure, come on in my office. So they sit down. And he says, uh, boss, I know that we're short on capital. I know we lost a credit line. We've used all our capital up with all this consolidation we've been doing. And uh, I know we need to buy inventory. Well, it turns out uh, I just sold some real estate, and I got some cash here I don't need. Would you like to borrow it? We never had the conversation about how to recapitalize the business because we didn't have to. Because the whole thing about the money it was a sign from God to try to get his attention as to what the real root issue was. And when we dealt with that real root issue, which was his marriage and his, his hearing God and discerning the will of God and recognizing the spiritual warfare that was going on in his, his business, well, that's another element of it, in the course of the conversation, I said, do you guys believe Ephesians 6 where it says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers? Oh, yeah, yeah, we believe that. Okay, do you believe that's true in your business? And you could just hear it, it was like, uh, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. I've never thought about that before. I mean, we think about that in church. We don't think about it in business. Maybe we think about it in a home, but not in business. Business is business. Business is about money. But they said, you know, I don't have any... Look at that text. There's no basis in that text for me not to consider spiritual warfare in my business. I said, is anybody praying for you? I said, well, I ran and thought about it. Nobody's praying for this business? Nobody's praying for you as a leader? No? I said, have you really looked at Ephesians 6, what it says there? He said, you know, not, I guess I really haven't. I mean, I've heard a lot of sermons on it and everything, and, but, you know, I, I guess I really didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I said, well, just take a look, to, look at what it says. It starts out, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual force, hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then he says, put on the whole armor of God. And we've all heard that, and we've heard many sermons on that. And when it's all over, in verse 18, he says this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Part of the armor is prayer. Now, most of us, we, we've heard about the armor. We don't hear a lot about prayer, at least not in the sermons that I've heard. It's like you've got to do all this other stuff, the armor, the breastplate, no, 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 no. it's all great stuff, and you want to do that, but there's prayer. And nobody's praying for this business. So they said, I said, uh, you know, why don't you ask your wife if she would be willing to intercede for the business? And the wife was just, she said, I'd love to. I'd love to be a partner with you in the business. And if that's, how, if that's what you want me to do, I will do it. So she committed to start praying. And I modeled for her. I said, let me give you a model prayer to pray for the business. And she started praying that prayer for the business. And that's been transforming in terms of releasing them 
from this warfare that was going on in the business but was manifested by financial problems. So that's just an illustration of how money is a symptom and what really is driving reality both in your family and your business life is whatever level of spiritual truth you walk in. The more truth you walk in, the better results you're going to get. You guys results driven? You want to profit? Then you need to have a godly walk. You need to be walking with God every day. You need to be circumspect about where you are in your relationship with God, and that will produce results. Now, back to Fiji. Fijians, you know, they didn't have this separation of church problem. So they were recognizing right off the bat the problem in this country is the church and the manifestation is the economy. I mean, that's so hard for us to get. I know you're listening to that saying, I, boy, man, I've never heard this before. But that, that got it. And so they got the church unified, they got the revival going, and transformation is happening left and right. Miracles begin to happen. There was a, a Hindu girl. A, a, she, uh, she had had an eye problem for 18 years. The mom had taken her to every doctor she could find. She had taken her to every Hindu temple she could find, talked to every Hindu priest she could find, and got no relief anywhere. She decided just out of total frustration to go to a revival meeting. So she goes to a revival meeting. And they're, they're sitting there, and they have a prayer for healing. So she goes up, and, you know, they pray over her. Well, nothing really happened the first night. But she went back. Second night, prayed over again. Nothing really happened. Third night, they go back, pray over again. And now this third night, her daughter says, you know something? I can see something now. So she went back the fourth night and the fifth night, and they kept praying, and they kept praying. And after a week or so, the eyesight has has totally returned to this eye that had been gone for 18 years. They go back to the doctor. The doctor says, I don't know what happened, but there's no problem with your eye. And what do you think happened to that Hindu family? They fell on their knees and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That happened because political leaders understood the driving reality was spiritual reality. They go to the church leaders and challenge the church leaders who are out of order to get in order. The church leaders respond and repent, and th they just begin to pray. They didn't organize anything other than they agreed to come together and organize an association of churches. And the purpose was to unify, to connect, and to relate, and to support each other. They put aside their petty differences, their doctrinal differences, and said, we all believe in Christ as the Savior of the world, and we are going to speak Christ, preach Christ, worship Christ, teach Christ. We're going to infect this culture with Christ. And when a culture gets infected with Christ, that's what transforms everything. It transforms the schools. It transforms the businesses. It transforms the public policy. It transforms the government. Everything gets transformed because Christ is the only change agent of the world. And that's the power of understanding this. So you bring that now to your businesses. Okay? Most of us, I mean, I, hey, I was there, I ran a, a family business for over 10 years, and uh, I ran it just like most other, you know, Christian people that didn't understand biblical principles. You know, that's where most are. I mean, there, how, many, how many of you have studied, uh, studied business from, from, uh, from the Bible? Any of y'all done that? That's what I thought. <laughs> See, this this is this little prop I use. This is a this is the handbook of organizational excellence and prosperity. And I like to go into groups and play with people a little bit. You know, you can tell I've got a kind of a sinister side to me. So I'll hold this up and I say, okay, you guys, how many of you guys got an MBA? Bing, 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 all these hands go up. Okay, how many of you guys study business from the handbook of organizational excellence and prosperity? They're all looking at that like, what is that? You haven't studied from this book? This is it. This is the book of books. All the other books come from this book. You know, you read Drucker, you read Deming, or you read Jim Collins, whatever you're reading, they're just driving knowledge from this book. By the way, have all, how many of y'all read Good to Great? Y'all read it? Have y'all noticed they're all biblical principles? Did y'all notice that? Yeah, he just doesn't know it. You know? And you pick any, any business book you want to the level of, of accuracy of the book is the level of alignment with the Word of God. It's very simple. Because this, this is the ultimate handbook for life. See, and when we begin to see this as a handbook for business, then it becomes transforming. Now, why would I think that I can do anything apart from this handbook? Why would I think he would bless anything apart from this handbook? 
I mean, you stop and think about it, it's just, it's, it's folly. It's like, I mean, it's ridiculous. If you create something, how many of you have invented anything, made anything? Well, when I got out of school, I got a Ph.D. in physics, and I was hired by TI, and we built the first ion implantation machine. Do you all know what that is? Okay. It's the current technology for making semiconductor material. Basically, your, everything that's got a computer chip in it today has been made by an ion implantation machine. And the way that works, um, the prior technology was called diffusion te technology. What we did then is we'd take silicon and we would grow it. You can actually grow silicon into a cylinder. And then you cut it up in little slices like cookies. And you put the cookies in trays, you put the tray in the oven, turn on the oven, and you inject impurities into it like arsenic or borum, boron or gallium, things like that. And that creates dim different properties. And it's those different properties that create semiconductor phenomena. So that's a very imprecise um, way to do it. There's a lot of imperfections in that process. It's a time-consuming process. So what we did with ion implantation is we gave an alternative process. In this process, we had a gun that was shooting ions down a tube, and then we had a magnetic field that was in controlling and sweeping the ions across the wafer. So if this is the wafer, we'd sweep it across like this, and we'd sweep it across like that. So we got a very uniform distribution of ions implanted in the silicon. So we got high efficiency uh, a, a product, high, and basically a high-quality product that way, and that's the way it's done today. So I was part of the team, built the very first machine at TI 30 years ago. And so what I did is I built the gun. I built an ion gun. And so my job, once the gun was built and developed, is I had to document how this gun worked. So I had to write a manual. I wrote a book. Okay, this is the way the gun is designed to work, the do's and don'ts. And so that's what you do. When you invent something is you, you write a manual to go with it. Well, God invented human beings, and he gave us this manual. Okay? And what we tend to do is take this manual and assume, well, this applies to church. It doesn't really apply to you know, the business or public policy. Now, our, our forefathers didn't think that way, but we think that today. So we've got to begin to get it that the Bible is the handbook of life. Now, here's a, an interesting story that illustrates this. There's a man named Marion, and, in, and uh, he had a very struggling company back in the uh, mid-40s. He, uh, uh, he basically did moth-proofing, and he did some carpet cleaning. But the carpet cleaning was a very new business and struggling business. Now, he'd been in business for about 15 years. He had ran a home-based business. He had about five or six workers, just a hand-to-mouth kind of operation. He was a Christian. He had been converted by under Harry Ironside. Do you all know who Harry Ironside was? Harry Ironside was a very famous preacher up in Chicago. He sat under Harry Ironside and, uh, and was, was saved in the 1930s, about the time he started his business. So he got really convicted uh, about the, uh, his need to walk with God and to know God, and so he got really serious about, about doing that. He became a very faithful church attender. He was involved in Bible studies. He was involved in the youth group, all these kinds of things. So throughout the 30s and up to the middle 40s, his pastor viewed him as a dream. You know, some of you may you have relationships with your pastors where they look at you and say, man, you are the model church member. We absolutely love you. Well, that's where, that's where uh, Marion was. So mid-1940s come along, and Marion is in a home doing moth-proofing one day. He has his own uh, uh, material that he's developed to, to kill the moths. And he, he's, Marion is a very, very insightful kind of guy. He realized there was a lot of snake oil on the market, so he went out and, and developed his own product. He actually used a lab at Northwestern University to develop product that would kill these moths. And so he's in a closet doing this moth proofing, and all of a sudden there's an explosion, boom. And, and he's knocked down, and, he's, and he thought he was going to die. He spent a year in the hospital. And at first, he didn't know if he was going to live. And then when it became clear he was going to live, he didn't know if he'd ever see again. And so he was in this hospital room pretty much by himself for a long, long periods of time. All he had was scripture that he had memorized. And so he meditated. He meditated on that scripture and prayed and asked the Lord, Lord, I need to understand what you're saying through all this. I know there's something going on. There's a reason why I've had this experience. Would you please give me revelation as to what you're doing? And he's reflecting on this. He remembers a text out of Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. 
Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And he recalled looking that up at one time, and he, his reflection was that is the first time in Scripture that the term prosperous and successful had been used. Now, I don't know that that's totally accurate, but in his mind at that time, that's what he thought. Well, what he got to thinking about was, okay, what is it that facilitated that prosperity and success? And it was the meditation on the law, which is God's revelation day and night. And so as he, as he reflected on that, you know, he realized, okay, that day and night, that's a picture of something. He says, you know, night, where am I at night? I'm at home at night. And when I go home, I, I pick up the word. That was before TV and radio was all that popular. So what they did at night, at night was they sit down and read the word. You ever tried that? Go home, don't watch TV, just read the word. Might be a different deal. So he, he was used to reading the Bible. He read it extensively. He carried a Bible around with him all the time. He says, you know, I do that at home. And then he said, you know, but you know, I don't really do that so much at work. And he says, you know, I'm kind of of the camp that says that work really doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. That separation of church and state again. It's that some people call that dualism. You hear the term dualism? Well, we, we separate out physical and spiritual reality. And, and, and so when you do that, what you've done is you've taken the foundation out from underneath physical reality. So now physical reality is floating out here without a foundation. And that's why people make up their own rules and do whatever they want to do. But when you put a, and you will not have long-term success that way. When you put a spiritual base under it that lines up with God, now you have put a foundation for success. So Marianne came to understand that. And he began to repent and weep in that hospital room. He said, Lord, I have really blown it. I thought I was such a great Christian. I thought I was walking with you and following your word. And I had no idea what it was to meditate on your word during the day. It's just beyond me. And he says he got a revelation that the Bible had to be his handbook for business. It was my handbook for my personal life. It was a handbook for my family. But I never saw it as a handbook for business. And so as he began to get that revelation, he said, Lord, if you will grant me the ability to continue to live, then I will commit to living my life and living my business life on this word. And so he got out of the hospital. The Lord spared him. And he goes back to work, and the very first day he walks in the room and is gathering about like this, five or six guys there all looking at him saying, Boss, so glad to see you, glad you're well, glad you survived, glad you're healthy and you're back you're able to work again. He says, I'm not the same guy that I was a year ago. I'm different. And it's okay. How are you different? He said, well, because I had an encounter with God in the hospital and a revelation from Joshua 1.8 that's going to change the way I do business. And I'm going to lay it out here for you, and you guys are not under any obligation to, to continue with me. But here's the way I'm going to run this business. And that is we're going to meditate on the Word of God by day, which is during the work hours. This is our handbook right here. This is what we're going to build the business on. Everything we do is going to be filtered through the Word of God. Well, to a man, they all said, okay, we're in. We're with you. They said, okay, I don't know where it's going to take us. There's no guarantee where this is going to take us. They said, fine, we're in it. Well, how many of you know that when you begin to walk out of conviction, you get a gut check? Y'all experience that reality? Okay, you get a gut check. I mean, those of you that follow the Cowboys, you probably saw they got a gut check here recently. You know, they thought they were pretty good, you know, and they got a gut check. So Marion and his team got a gut check, and here's the way the gut check came. Um, Marion had, had, had invented, let me rephrase that, he had discovered. You know, personally, I don't think we invent anything. We, we discover how God's world works is what we do. So he had discovered a product that was a superior rug cleaning product. Now, most of his business was exterminating, but, but he had discovered this rug cleaning product, and back then, there really wasn't any quality control at all, and so things were, uh, you know, pretty much whatever, whatever people bought is what stores sold, and whatever stores sold is what people bought. Nobody was checking anything to see if it did anything. There were no, no truth detectors, no, no research labs, you know, validating claims of products and things like that. So... It was a lot of snake oil out there, and so 
Marion had enough integrity to say, I'm not going to sell snake oil. I'm only going to sell the genuine stuff. So he, he found a product that really did do a superior job. And it was, it was based on a, a special mordant. You know what a mordant is? Mordant is a, is a, uh, a dye product. And it, what it does is it facilitates pulling the dye into rug fabric. So if you're going to dye something, you put a mordant in there to pull the molecules of paint down in there to get a good, complete paint job. Otherwise, you just, you just paint the surface. You know, you take, think about a rug that you just had the tips of the rug pieces you know, were, were dyed and the lower part weren't. I mean, it wouldn't be very acceptable. So you had to have a way to pull that dye in there, and that's what the mordant did. And as, as, uh, as Pepper, as, well, that was his nickname, Pepper Marion. He was an ex-baseball player. But uh, Marion reflected on this. He realized that mordant would probably help pull water down in there a little bit better to clean the rug, and you could use less water. And water is the enemy of rugs because it causes shrinkage. So he saw a very interesting key, and he developed that, that product. He tested it. It worked great. And so now he's ready to go, go market this thing. So he said, I need to find a company that will help me by virtue of giving me referrals. So I need a rug company that sells rugs. Then they tell me who they sell them to, and my guys will go call on these people and sell the cleaning services. Sound like a great idea. So he, he starts pounding the streets for five years he gets no finally he finds one rug store who will do it and so they set up the arrangement they have a contract you know the rug dealers gonna basically receive the service calls the service calls will be then forwarded to to Marion's company Marion's company would provide the service the customer you know would not even know that it's Marion's company doing it they would think it's the it's the rug company doing it so it's a seamless thing for the customer but basically, the rug company, all they're doing is providing Marion the referrals, and Marion's doing the sales call. The customer calls the rug company, the rug company calls Marion, and Marion goes and does the service. So it's a nice little simple arrangement. And it was an exclusive arrangement. So every call that came to the rug store was supposed to come to Marion so he could go do the service. Well, it's rocking along, and everything's cool. And then one day, Marion hears about a complaint. And he's saying, hey, what's going on here? And so he begins to investigate, and he discovers that, unbeknownst to him, and contrary to the contract, that the rug store had set up a, clean, a cleaning department. And they were cherry-picking. The calls that would come in that they wanted, they took. The ones they didn't want, they sent to Marion. And it took Marion several months to catch on to this. And, of course, when he finds out about it, he just goes ballistic. Now, who wouldn't go ballistic? We all would go ballistic, right? And so, now, imagine this meeting. The day this comes out, the guys come in, they've been beating the pavement, selling the service, and Marion's got to tell them, yeah, you've been selling it, but you're not getting the benefit of it because the rug store is, is cherry-picking and keeping what they want and only giving us what they don't want. Now, what do you think that meeting was like? Kill. Sue them. Huh? Isn't that what we'd be doing? Now, come on. That's, we are in a litigious society. That's what we do. We've got to breach a contract here. We'd sue them. Well, this is where the Holy Spirit whispered in Marion's ear. Marion, remember your commitment. So Marion says, time out, guys. Picks up the handbook. This is how we're going to make the decision. We're going to consider everybody involved in this situation, and we are going to apply biblical principles to each party and come up with a solution. So here was his solution. Number one is we have an untrustworthy client. We cannot work with this party, so we need to sever the relationship. However, he has customers that need to be serviced. He does not have a department big enough to service them, so we will have to augment his services for a period of time while he, bigs up, uh, while he builds up his department so that the customers are not in, in, uh, impacted in any way here. And we're not going to sue him. We're going to tell him, you breached our contract. We can no longer be in contract with you. We're terminating the contract, but we're going to phase out over a period of time so you can build up the service and take care of the customers. We're no longer going to call on the customers and sell the product. Now, Marion did not, could not afford to lose that business. Does that surprise you? That's so like God. You know, that's the gut check. You look at there and say, wait a minute. If we cut that off, we won't have enough business. We'll be out of business by the end of the year. That's what it looked like. That's always the way it looks like in the natural. It looks like it's death. It's over. And Marion says, I don't care. This is making, the, making our decision for us. The word of God. We're going to meditate on the word by day. And so 
as they were faithful to walk that out, by the end of the year, you know what happened? Some way, somehow, they had a record year. They didn't go out of business. They got released from that unequally yoked situation, and the company was stronger than better than ever, and that, that began to propel the company on to eventually become one of the first franchises in this nation, and eventually it became a public company, and you know the company by the name of Service Master. Service Master was built on the reality that this is the handbook of business. Can we get that revelation? Can we really believe that? Or we're going to just buy into the dualistic mindset that, that church and Bible have really not, not too much to do with business other than, well, I want to be ethical and I want to evangelize. That's pretty much it. The reality is that God defines the rules of management. God defines the rules of selling, advertising. Ever thought about that? How about project management? You ever study this book and say, okay, Lord, how do we go about managing projects? You know? Just a little quick story. I, I'm getting ready to do a, a seminar, and, and part of the seminar is going to be a talk. I'm going to talk about marketing and advertising. And I, I got a call last week from a Christian website. And the lady starts out saying, we've been researching your website, and we know we can really help you build your business. I said, oh, okay, all right. Well, what do you have in mind? Well, we want you to come and start advertising with us. And I want, I, one of our executives was going to call you on Monday. I said, well, I'm very busy. I don't have a lot of time for this conversation, so he needs to call me precisely at, at, at uh, I think I said 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock Monday morning, whatever it was. And I said, he needs to be on time because I'm, I've, I've got a real tight schedule. And, but I'll be happy to talk to him. Okay? So I said, give me your website so I can take a look at it. So in the meantime, meantime, I start looking at their website, and I'm not very impressed by what I'm seeing. Okay? So anyway... <clears throat> This guy calls me on Monday. He calls me 40 minutes late. I said, I'm sorry. I really don't have time to talk to you. I told you I needed to talk to you at 9 or 10 or whatever the time it was. He said, well, just give me a minute. I said, okay. So he gives me this pitch. He starts saying, we've researched you, and we know what, you know, what your product niche is. Your product niche is pastors. I said, no, it isn't. And he just went on by that. <laughs> <laughs> Just went on by to, to tell me how much he was going to be able to help me. And he had a special deal where he's, you know, advertise with us. We'll do banner ads and this kind of ad, button ads and all those kind of things. And we'll charge you by the click. And he said, you know, our normal rate's $2 a click, but for you, and you know, a dollar a click. I said, wow, that's what a deal. You know, well, it, what do you see there? This is in the name of, of Christ. What do you see in here? You see greed? Okay. You see lies and deception? They didn't look at my website. If you spend any time on my website at all, you'd know I'm, I'm a business consultant. Right at the very top, it tells you I'm a business consultant. Business consultants don't normally sell to pastors. Pastors don't generally listen to business consultants. Have you all noticed that? <laughs> pastors generally listen to other pastors. And I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that's reality. And for him to call me and act like he's studied me and knows all about what, what I need and show he has absolutely no clue about who I am, see, that, that is the dysfunctionality in our advertising marketing today. A biblical worldview of advertising is let another praise you, not your own lips. Advertising is all about me telling you how great I am. A biblical worldview of it is about me doing such great service that you go tell others how great I am. You see the difference? And we just, we're missing it because what we have is in Christianity today is this bifurcation of spiritual and physical reality. So spiritual reality has no relevance. And our church leaders, and I'm a church leader, I'm sitting here as a church leader, I'm telling you how we think. And the way we think is it's so, we, we keep thinking that what happens in the marketplace is really not relevant to God. He doesn't really care that much about it. So we're not going to spend any time trying to help you figure out how to run, how to run your business as well. That's, and they think it's all going to burn out. I actually heard a pastor address a group of business people at a conference where they were trying to embrace a more holistic view of, of Christianity in the marketplace. The pastor actually said, guys, you've got to keep in mind, well, everything you do in the marketplace is going to burn up. How does that make you feel? 
boy, I'm energized to go do it. It's all going to burn up, right? No, it's, it's not going to burn up. What's going to burn up is that which does not line up with God. That's what's going to burn up. What's going to remain is that which lines up with the character and nature of God. We're told in Colossians 3.17 to work in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking about all kinds of work, including what you do in the marketplace. So basically our work should be such quality that we could put the name of Jesus on it. You ever thought about that? Okay, we're going to deliver to you a project. At the bottom it says, in the name of Jesus. Wow. I must stop and think about that for a second. Have we done everything we need to do? Have we thought this through carefully? You know, have we made sure that we've trained our customer well? He knows how to use this product. I mean, we're thinking about everything because this reflects Christ. And see, that's the way we're supposed to be working. So when you're working that way, do you have to advertise? Hmm? What's going to advertise for you? You're not going to believe about this. Well, I'll give an example. I mean, you know Larry Rosenbaum. Larry, Mo Larry Rosenbaum, I would put him up against any Christian businessman I know. Let me just tell you a little story about Larry. Larry is absolutely committed to being a kingdom handyman. You know what that looks like? First of all, Larry works with absolute total integrity. He comes into your house, and he sizes up what you need, and he treats it like it's his own house. He does not waste time. He, does not, he will give you choices, and he will tell you what he would choose and why. And he will absolutely see that everything is properly done. And he, when he charged you, I mean, I remember one time I, he said, you know, he was attending my church. I was an elder in the church. And, and he says, I'm going to give you a discount. I said, no, I don't want a discount. He said, I'm going to give you a discount. I said, I don't want a discount. He said, no, I'm going to give you a discount. I said, Larry, read my lips. I'm your elder. No discount. <laughs> okay? I mean, he was just insistent on giving me a discount. And I... I I wanted to pay him full price. He was worth every dime of it, every dime of it, probably more. And so that's the way he is. And when he leaves, he will pray over you. One time he's there, and my wife says, Larry, I can't, I can't uh, stay here. I'd love for you to pray over me, but I've got to go. He says, what's your cell phone number? She gives him a cell phone number. She, she takes off in about two minutes, ring-a-ling-ling, here's Larry. Okay, Carol, can I pray for you? Oh, yeah. So he prays for her over the phone as she's driving to her appointment, and as he's driving to his next appointment. Because Larry sees everything he does as an assignment from God. And when you begin to think that way about your business, suddenly it is very significant work. It is kingdom work. It's work that Jesus Christ values. And that's why we need to do it with excellence. And that's why we need to glorify God with our businesses. So Lord bless you as you guys do that.